Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Adam Hawkins, and I'm here with a new voice on the show, my friend Joe Widner. Joe, this is your first time on Culture Matters, so are you feeling... What's the feeling? Um, I'm hearing my voice for the first time Yeah, through the headphones, so okay. yeah, we're good. It's awkward, and I'm, I'm sorry about that. Okay. You're going to get through it. Okay, we're both really excited today uh, to talk to Daniel, who wrote this story called Everything Sad is Untrue. It follows his story as a young Iranian boy as he immigrated to the U.S. It's funny, sad, inspiring, clever, um, and it is my favorite book of the last year. Joe, would you say that's probably true for you? Absolutely. My wife and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yep. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Joe, welcome to the show. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's also my friend. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Daniel, I could do the uh, like book jacket um, bio for you, but what I found recently, uh, and maybe it's just because I'm lazy, but truly, I find it more interesting to have the guests introduce themselves because they say what's actually important to them. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love for you to just maybe tell us what's important to you about yourself and your story without mentioning the whole book. <laughs> sure, sure. I could do that quickly. Uh, yeah. yeah I, I mean, the book sort of is uh, autobiographical fiction, so right. it, it kind of overlaps with my bio entirely. Um, I was born in Iran and uh, at a very young age, about five, my mother converted from Islam to Christianity. And so um, we, we had to leave very quickly as refugees. Um, it's a capital crime there to convert to Christianity. And so um, my father chose to stay. My mother, my sister, and I um, ended up um, traveling for about two years, uh, which sounds uh, really lovely. But we were refugees looking for a host uh, country. So we were in the UAE um, for a while and then a refugee camp in the outskirts of Rome, Italy, uh, and then finally got asylum to Edmond, Oklahoma, which is where um, sort of my eight-year-old self, seven-year-old self um, picks up the story and is kind of trying to describe what life was like um, in Iran before he came to the U.S., where everything is completely new and different, like mm. down to like peanut butter, you know, discovering peanut butter all the way to, you know, everything else. And so, um, and so, you know, the distinction starts to form. And I think in this, you know, in, in a life often, you know, it's really easy to create the false dichotomy of, you know, the old place, good, the new place, bad. And mm. that's where he starts. It's a childish idea, but it's, I hope a fair one that people will, um, will sort of accept if and only if you realize that's where he last had a whole family, right? That's right. the last place. Mm -hmm. Dad was. So clearly it becomes the land of storytelling and mythology and the place where he used to run through the orchards of his grandfather's farm. And um, and Edmund is where they are poor and mm -hmm. live on the wrong side of the tracks and can't speak the language. I just mm -hmm. don't understand anything. Like, mm -hmm. um, And so he starts there um, and, and starts to kind of almost create this self-aggrandizing story that his students do not, uh, the other students do not believe in any way <laughs> until, until he starts to grow as a character and starts to meet the, the really, the, just the wonderful people of Oklahoma mm. starts to understand the culture of America that what in my own head, I call the cowboy way. Mm. Um, and also starts to understand the 
com- complexities of his, you know, family life. And, um, and so in the book, uh, it all kind of comes together when his father, this figure that he's been um, imagining as a larger than life man of poetry and mythology is going to come to Oklahoma, right? Mm. The world myth and, and the regular life are going to collide. Yes. And will he be sort of an everyday dude? Will he be some schmo or is he going to be sort of this heroic figure? Um, the book kind of opened the exact opposite like with the yes. meaning because i it, like new york times picked it up and then the, like my interviews with npr were so weird because they really wanted me to that was the one i didn't say i was like they kind of, i got the feeling they really wanted me to hate oklahoma and i was like <laughs> mm, i don't i don't i don't know what to tell you and then and then like other reviewers they, i mean quite literally i told you this at the beginning they were yeah. just like i'm so glad it's not religious and then then um i think quite literally like a couple prominent Christian folks um, said it. And I am, I am Christian just to be clear. Yeah, like yeah. I, I profess it, but it's the book again, the book isn't about me. So it's just, right. it's, it would be also, I didn't become, I, I mean, like, look, eight, nine year old, like, yeah, I, I think I got baptized. I, I mean, I didn't even in the book, but it wasn't, you know, you don't quite understand the magnitude of these sure, things. Yeah. I don't think, you know, so, so I don't really, I don't front myself that much, but, um, but it was a, it was a fascinating experience to have where, it sort of felt like then the, the, the Christian community picked it up and, and, and dug it. And I was like, good, thank God. I mean, yeah, there's yeah, literally yeah. a section that's like, I mean, I, I, so I think of it as a deeply Christian book that has somehow managed to kind of wind its way into, into every corner. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what that means from the rest of my career. Right. Like as a sure. artist, kind of like, I hope they let me keep publishing books. I hope it's that we're not in such a bad state that you're not even allowed to be Christian and publish uh, in, you know, trade publishing, but we are kind of in that bad state. Yeah, to be yeah. clear. It's pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, you know, in that sense, like maybe my award days are over. I, you know, who knows? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I just, I just write what I think. I mean, my next one's coming out. Um, and it's, you know, Silk Road, but you know, again, like every story has to have truth in it. And like the capital T truth, as far as I'm concerned, leads back to Christ. So like mm-hmm. you functionally can't have a true story, um, you know, without some, you know, I don't, but, but you know, in, in the 11th century Silk Road where this one is, you know, it's about a con artist and, you know, stuff wow. like that. It's like, it's not, you know, there's as many opportunities to say like Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Um, then when your mom is kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, the centerpiece. Of right. Of course. So we'll see where the rest, where the rest of it goes. I certainly hope, uh, you know, I sort of, I don't know, who knows, but that, that's a question. You find me at an inflection point. I'm really, I've been really, you know, to have, podcasts like yours even reach out is really an honor it's one of those like wow who would have thought like real real like real uh christian culture that matters has sort of read the book is is shocking Mm. like i really am it's almost i find myself both sort of i think i would say like blissfully unprepared (laughs) (laughs) so one thing i noticed was as even even as you were talking, you this character in the story is you. It's you, but even as you're talking about him, you're you're saying he. And um, I was thinking through all the therapy I've been through, the uh, process of sort of getting outside of yourself and looking back at the at the younger version of you. You talk uh, somewhere in the book. I don't remember about your editor being the one who com- coming up with the idea of you. Maybe it's your editor. I don't remember. Or a friend or somebody who read it saying you should write this story as the the boy version of yourself can you tell us a little bit about that and did that that writing decision sort of open something up for you as as you were writing the book 
Opened everything up. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, third, basically, so the, the way the book starts getting all my life, I knew I wanted to write this story, right? Okay. And all my life, the stories that I adored, um, which I would never compare myself to are, are things like hundred years of solitude, mm. right? These giant, like generational stories that are written by like the great Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And, um, and I always sort of dreamed along those lines. Mm. And so when I get to college, I'm, I'm working as, you know, trying to write, um, but always afraid to touch that one. That one was the one like, you can't cut that diamond until you are the best diamond cutter in the world. Cause mm. you don't get another cut at this. Right. Mm, mm. And I knew, and I knew I wanted to tell that story. It was a really powerful one to me. And then I, you know, I had a sense that it was, you know, it had some good material. Right. Mm. So I was terrified of touching it, terrified and kind of just, you know, continuing to dabble in a bunch of other things until um, I get a call from my dad. And at this time I'm in at Brooklyn living with three guys like in bunk beds, right? It's like a mm. tiny little apartment and there's no place <laughs> to get privacy except the bathroom. So I go into the bathroom. My dad's calling from Iran and he tells me my grandfather died. Mm. And I'm in this just uh, I'm just, uh, you know, it hit the the shock hits me. And one of the shocks of that moment was. I'm never going to have another memory of this guy. I, I had left as a kid and I had always somewhere in the back of my mind imagined that I would get to go back and he would teach me like I mean, how to just be a man, right? Like this is the dude who knows how to plant trees and, and you know, like deal with cows. I mean, just this, like stuff that in my head was like, that's what grandfather does. That's mm. what grown men do. And like, I'm just this like irresolute artist in New York, right? And so um, – and when that happened, I started to write down all the memories that I had of him. And as you can imagine, that's the function of the beginning of the book. The character is doing that. But I wrote it as a, um, at first, as sort of a literary adult, like memoir from the perspective of a 27-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and as a result, I was really kind of emotionally removed from it, right? Like that moment where your dad is like leaving or telling you that he's staying and you're you're separating. At 27 is something that, you know, you're either looking back on with with some sort of scar tissue mm. or you've worked through it and you're sort of emotionally removed or something. And and it just never played right. Um, because frankly, the other job of your adulthood is to work through the chaos of your childhood, mm. you know, and make sure that you don't pass this on to other relationships. You're not allowed by the time you're like 35, you're not allowed to look over to your your spouse and be like, well, I snapped because, and you're like, <laughs> uh, you know, because no one's allowed to tell me, you know, to eat the rest of my peaches. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you're like, okay, I, I get that that happened to you at seven. And I even get that that's a real trigger for you, but you know, functionally, we're going to need you to get past this because every time someone asks you about peaches, you, you know, turn the <laughs> tables over or whatever. Right. 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 Um, and so, you know, that, that's the functional job of adulthood. I, I so I'd written several drafts. They were, they were very information rich mm. because with adults, like you almost always want to deliver the context. You're like, well, this was when the, Islamist revolution was happening sure. and the you know in the background the governments of these countries were doing this and that's why we had to leave and it was just functionally boring yeah. um but then when someone said and you're right it was my editor friend I was complaining to her it had been like it had been 7 years I'd been working on this thing mm. and she goes you know just write it for it in it's like where it was most emotionally raw mm. um and she said the truth that people want is the emotional truth of this story mm -hmm. um and so I said, okay, let me try it. And I went home and put it in the voice of that kid and it just flowed out of me. Wow. Um, it really poured out. And that was that was the sort of the um the impetus. It was six years later, meanwhile, it yeah. took another <laughs> yeah. six before before it was finished. But nonetheless. One of the notes you added to the book was you said, This was my life as I experienced it, and it is both fiction and nonfiction at the same time. 
one of the things that captivated me the most was not only hearing the emotionally rich story of your childhood, but but also the Persian tales and storytelling and weaving in like things that I had heard. But it, it struck me so much that I heard your tales and your story tales uh, in a way that was different from the story tales and, and fairy tales that I heard as a kid. And having them woven in uh, would just captivated me, absolutely captivated me. Um, so just can you talk about the mixture of the nonfiction and fiction, um, how telling your story can be both of those and uh, why you chose to do it that way and what it meant? Sure. So I, I alluded to having been an editor before. Um, I have I've edited a lot of memoirs, actually, a lot mm. of celebrity memoirs <laughs> as well. Um, and like memoirs of like American generals and just various like you know, figures. Yeah. And um, it's always so interesting to look at the memoir genre. And the idea that these are true tales is already kind of a flawed position, in my opinion. Right. Like we a memoir is fundamentally how I would like the world to remember me is a better definition mm. <laughs> right and um and there are some people who really are brutally honest about it and some people just simply are not they're not going to write their memoirs the way you wish them to mm. um and i'm sure we've all we've all had grandparents of both kinds or, or, or older people you know and some of them will tell you the nitty-gritty of their experience and some of them will never tell you anything bad they don't speak against the family mm. and that's fine too mm. um but functionally you know i so my training was already to kind of have a skeptical and i don't think skeptical means cynical but a skeptical eye of anytime someone is presenting themselves mm. um you know i don't think it's a virtue to show up to a job interview and be like well this is me uh, you know just as i've got out of bed <laughs> it's like no you present yourself mm -hmm. and that's that's fundamentally always going to be a presentation so that's the first problem i have with memoir the other is um memoir as done in chaotic times which is to say everyone's memory of an explosion is vastly different mm. everyone's memory if you go talk to anybody I, you know i was in september 11th i was around oklahoma during the oklahoma city bombing and both those you talk to anybody and they're they're you start to get you know i think journalists get this sort of cynicism where they think everyone is lying and mm. the reality is everyone remembers everything completely <laughs> differently <laughs> That's the second knock against the the ability to say like this is fact. I you know that was challenging. And then the third is, I knew I wanted to tell intergenerationally stories of my great grandma, and I did a lot of research about that, right? But I could have given it to you based on the research and told you like, well, at that time, um, she you know she said she felt this way or her grandmother. But I wanted to give you a scene. I wanted like mm -hmm. the bad uncles to show up at the door and mm. say hello. And she says, hello, uncles. The minute I say mm. I write in the book in quotation marks, hello, uncles, that's made up. I didn't I don't know for a fact if she said <laughs> right, hello. Right, right, right. Um, and so any nonfiction writer will tell you, no matter how many primary sources you interview, and I did, and how many people you're like, yes, this is the way she used to be. It doesn't matter. You functionally created a scene based on your research. Mm -hmm. And I did do that, right? In the in the, For the older generations, I I had them say words. And anytime you have them say words, you, you're not really allowed, if you're going to be honest, <laughs> you're not going to be allowed to um, call that memoir. So I, I think of it as a book that is actually seeking hyper honesty by pointing out the fact that some of these things are impossible to be honest about. Mm -hmm. But there's also a sense, too, in which, and I think you might agree with this, but the... Well, there's two things that I want to talk about. One is the idea of place in your story, and the other is this idea of family and story itself, the mythos of a family, you know? Um, there's a sense in which even 
as we tell our mythical stories of our generations, there's always fiction that's going to be in there, you know, exaggerations or whatever. But stepping away from it a little bit, um, I love generational family epics. You were mentioning that off air a, a minute ago. And there's always this danger when you make draw comparisons. I think about it as someone who played in bands and somebody would be like, your band sounds like you're like, the next word better be something I love. <laughs> so at the risk of offending you, let me say, some some that were brought to mind, recent, more recent ones I've read, was like The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde by Juno Diaz, Everything's Illuminated by Jonathan Safran Foer, your book. And what I've noticed is so many of these generational stories are written by displaced peoples, whether it's immigrants whether it's refugees, whether it's diaspora. So, you know, in, in everything is illuminated, it's Jewish diaspora. In Oscar Wow, it's Dominican immigrant. In your book, a refugee family from Iran. Why do you, what is it about, I come from a family of Irish immigrants, and for us, the songs we sing, the, the stories we tell about family, there is something, my friends who don't have that near displaced history to them, they might know their great-grandpa was a plumber, but they don't know that their you know their great aunt lost her tooth because their great grandfather blah 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 intricate story connected that becomes part of a family mythos what is it about the experience of the displaced that makes family stories so important to tell in your mind <laughs> well i think i think it's all you have to hold on to right i mean right. no no New Yorker buys an I Heart NY t-shirt until the week, week they're about to move away from New York City. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they're like, I'm buying that shirt. And it's like, why? It's like, well, this functionally, it's it's the, the concept of a memento writ large mm. across an entire family history, right? Mm. And there's a line in the book where the kid kind of is touching on this. He says, you know, a patchwork text is the shame of a refugee, right? Yes. What is What does that mean? It means that he... <clears throat> Any family, like you talk to any family in Oklahoma, and I, I love doing this. Um, you'll go to like their house and they have these stories and they're amazing, but they're they're kind of um they they go under the radar. Like you don't go, oh my goodness, you have now spoken mythology, but they'll say <laughs> things like they'll say, Man, Uncle Billy, he was so strong. Like at one time he was mm -hmm. walking up like a, a a plank of wood and he stepped full on a nail and didn't even know it until the next morning. <laughs> and you're like, What? <laughs> like, <laughs> Uncle Billy is the Hulk? Like what? And the answer is like, yeah, he was so strong that he had a nail all the way in his foot. And and it just kind of passes by as you're mm -hmm. like in their living room, right. these kinds of stories. Um, and you don't, but they don't cherish them, I think. Oh, I mean, they cherish them. I'm, sure. I don't mean to disparage. I just mean to say like there becomes a desperation to hold and count and mm. recount them when you're no longer going to have the linearity. And linearity is what this kid is missing. And what I mean by that is... At any given time, you can go to your grandma's house and be like, hey, grandma or grandpa or anyone, anyone that in a linear family tree and say, hey, like, why is there a broken fence post? And she'll be like, oh, that was your grand, your daddy ran. He thought he was going to be a motorcycle, evil Knievel, yeah. like <laughs> yeah, yeah, superstar. Yeah, yeah. And that's the sign. And then you go, oh, OK. And then like, what about that? Like, what's that lump under the maple tree or whatever? And they'll be like, that's where we bury the dogs, you know, like or whatever. Like, uh, it's like. There is this source of family stories, and it is quite literally the generations before. Mm. And when you lose that, when you cut off a generation, like by having a refugee sort of generation, a generation that comes over and is 
everything is new. Everything is to be rebuilt. The the thing that you lose is tradition. The mm. thing that you lose is the those. And so he's functionally realizing that for his kids or for his any future, for his own even future sanity, he's going to need to like hold on to the ones he has because never again will be he be able to ask like why does our family have a crooked nose like this yeah like, what and it'll be like oh well because you come from the like whatever the, yeah, the yeah. great <laughs> roman emperor who went to persia and lost and then had two kids that's your great great grandpa <laughs> any of that stuff yeah and it's it's so meaningful and so he functionally is scavenging these patchwork pieces and trying mm. to put them together to form a family history and so um, it's beautiful. Yeah, so I think I think that's where the desperation comes from. Yeah, it's beautiful. I I I um that was going to be my follow up was the patchwork, and so I'm so glad you touched on that. The second my my second question then is more about place and just one some commentary on it, and then two a couple questions. And one is that you place seems to be so important. Iran is this magical thing you describe. You know, the tales are magical. The place is magical. It holds this history and magic for you. And as a Texan, I feel it's insane the next thing I'm going to say. But there's a sense in which you describe Oklahoma in a magical way, too. Maybe because <laughs> it's through the eyes of a child, right? Maybe it's it, yeah. because it's through the eyes of a child. But I think it's more than that. There's something nostal nostalgic about remembering our past. I the way you described the pain of childhood, even though I don't share your experiences, or the way you described classrooms and school and all these things, it brought something back. It conjured memories uh, adjacent to yours, but but it's there nonetheless. And so I wanted to ask you this question. Uh, as painful as Oklahoma was, I got the sense that you wouldn't have traded it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to ask, am I off? Like what? No, what, yeah. best state in the union. Mm. Best. <laughs> Oklahoma, number one. You don't Everything hear that else, very often. Two or lower. <laughs> yeah. No question. No yeah. question. It's the best state in the union. I adore that place. Um, my first novel, see, it's funny. This is the functions of publishing. My first novel, uh, you know, that someday may get published was nothing but me arriving in New York and being like, what? <laughs> and then, and then writing a love letter to Oklahoma. Mm. Um, and <laughs> I, so one, I know I adore that place. Yeah. Uh, that place is so cool. The, <laughs> the, like, the, I, I mean, I actually have trouble going back cause I, I have trouble about, I mean, I, I truly have just an overwhelming amount of love for a place that was capable of giving me what it did, mm. um, which was the welcome. It did. Now, of course, like a lot of people like hone in on like the knuckleheads, mm -hmm. um, which is like, but that's a trope of every middle school. I mean, there, and functionally, there's no, there's a laughable notion where people will sometimes read books like this, which is a genre I call tales of immigrant woe. And they'll kind of be like, and and I think the bad versions of those books really lean into the trope of like old world good, new world bad. Mm. Like, look at all these bullies. They'll never understand my food spices or whatever. <laughs> and and then like, but then it's like, yo, if that if the old world was so good, why were they trying to kill you? Mm. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, you're not allowed to pretend that only like the land of mystery and Agrabah <laughs> is where Aladdin and and what's names are. And there's nobody over there who's a knucklehead. No, of course not. There's there's no place that has a monopoly on that sort of thing. Um, and, but, uh, and I think this is where the book hopefully takes a much further step than that, right? right. As, 
as a young man, he he really is like mourning um, the loss of having been like a, the beloved son of the dentist of Isfahan, mm. who who was I mean, like who wouldn't miss having a whole family? Like functionally, this is a divorce novel yeah. and the kid misses having a family. Right. Mm. So that's OK, in my opinion. You're like, but and, and he very much has a um, arms crossed. Like, what is this place um, about Edmund, Oklahoma at first? As the story goes, you're absolutely right. Edmund, you know, the, the, the notion, and this is important in Iran because the parts that he's mythologizing is what he calls Persia. Mm-hmm. And then he starts to understand that the nation of Iran is a very different one. These, you know, given the situation that they're in and vice versa in Oklahoma, he starts to, uh, he starts to sort of describe some of the elements that he's finding and loving about, mm-hmm. about Oklahoma and some of the people that have been just so generous and kind. He starts to imagine them as the land of storytelling and mythology. And they start to kind of mesh and combine. And this is where the climax of the story really is, right? Mm. Is is kind of trying to find... Um, I mean, it sounds cornball-y, but it is. I mean, it's fundamentally like finding finding the good, the hopeful, the joyful, the kind. Um, these things are also, you know, do not have a monopoly any place in the world. And so once he starts to hone in on those parts of Oklahoma, it's not just, you know, abnormal and different yeah. for him. And, and he's like, he quite literally, he like discovers barbecue, discovers Mexican <laughs> yeah. food. Like, yeah. like when you're poor and you come to this country, like you have to eat the bad food. Mm-hmm. Like it's not good. Mm-hmm. In the same way that when you go to Italy, like there's, there's a part where he's in Italy, like mm-hmm. pretty famous for the best food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he has to eat hot dogs and it's, it's not good. Yeah. And, that, you know, and so, you know, it's not just a book trying to, you know, um, I think some of those books often, you know, take that that wrongful position of a false dichotomy. Mm. And and really, um, you know, you can get awful food in Italy, I promise. <laughs> um, and you can find knuckleheads in the place where you were once a prince. Yeah. And you can and you can find, um, you know, just the like most world class, open hearted kind individuals you know in places yeah. like like sometimes people laugh when i when i say i mean texans you're allowed to laugh when i big up oklahoma because yeah. <laughs> yeah we get i get that you're allowed but nobody else like when people like i'm like what are you talking about like don't don't i'm not the dude in uh to to uh, you know to, I'm not the dude to say mean things to, about Oklahoma in front of <laughs> like, like words is just not, not that's not in me. Um, so in, in some ways in the book, it's funny I, because I own it in my heart and love it so much. I do, you know, I, I make fun of it the way I, you know, family makes right, fun of each other. Right. Yeah. So, Staying on place, uh, Iran, you also put that as a very magical place. And obviously the, mm-hmm. there's the Persian stories, but um, you still had your father there. You still have ties there. And as a church, we've been praying for that space. Like it holds a really biblical significance, right? In, in the, in the story of the Bible and who comes from there, the garden of Eden, you know, all these things. One of the things we've found is that, um, as we've interacted with workers in the field or, uh, going into that in the 1040 window from a mission standpoint, they talk about dreams and they talk about seeing the white man and they talk about, um, light and God and Abraham standing on, you know, they have these dreams and all this mystical kind of aspect of like what they're seeing. And, and we're actually hearing that that's what's bringing them to conversion. Um, so anyways, I just want to talk about that because it's been really interesting as we see that in the life of our church. Um, but also just to kind of tie in, like, what do you still see in around? How have you stayed connected to it? 
Um, what has it meant to you and how have you interacted with it in its present day? Well, I mean, my father specifically is, you know, I, my, by phone is the <laughs> short answer. Um, I, you know, I interact with it mostly that way. Um, obviously, you know, any article that or art form, you know, film, you know, that comes out of that space is, you know, I'm the audience for. So I'm, I'm still very much a ravenous, um, you know, audience for, you know, even like, you know, I'll, I'll watch these like the, you know, what's happening in Persian hip hop, you know, in the <laughs> in the Persian hip hop scene, which, by the way, really vibrant scene That's of awesome. like rapping in Farsi. Right. But um, but it's not like it's not my you know particular I, like I don't even listen to American hip hop that much. <laughs> but, but because it's hard like I'll take it in um, because I'm, I'm just so interested in what Iranian artists are doing right now. Um, so in, in short, I mean, yes, I'm part I'm part of the diaspora. Right. So mm -hmm. I'm looking from the outside in. I there's you know, there is. And I and I think that's really important to note. You know, I don't I get I don't I have to admit much as I wish I had. I wish I had a, the kind of knowledge of it that, you know, that I could, I could um, remember smells mm -hmm. that are, that are anything other than four, 30 years old, right? Mm -hmm. the, 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 my smells of Iran are 30 years old. Do I believe they're still, yeah, they're, I think those streets in Isfahan probably still, you know, smell the way I remember them. Mm -hmm. um, I think, but um, I can't pretend they just still do. I can't pretend I have you know, I have what is basically a time capsule and personal understanding of Iran. Mm. And and that's really important to note because, you know, because people can create this like false presentation of like having some insight that I wish I had that I simply don't. Um, there's a professor out of UPenn. His name is Dick Davis. Uh, he's the greatest translator of Farsi, yes. um, uh, you know, like like books. Like if you want the Thousand and One Arabian Nights or the, uh, you know, Shahnameh or whatever, like, that dude did it. He did a great <laughs> job. And, you know, and you look at him and you, he, you know, he probably doesn't remember the smells of Isfahan, mm -hmm. I don't think, but, um, <laughs> but his insights are probably even more valuable. So I, I often find myself seeking, you know, the Dick Davises of the world who have even, you know, more mm. to, to share about it than I do. Um, but in terms of my, my experience with it, yeah, it's my, my father kind of we call and he tells me what's going on in his mm -hmm. life. And that's kind of, so it's, it's deeply personal and yet also deeply, uh, also sort of very broadly, you know, like casual, mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what, uh, you, you mentioned being part of the Iranian diaspora. And then we talked a little bit again off air, just about how they're not a monolith. The diaspora is not a monolith by any stretch, but I was curious before we move on, I do want to get into, we're obviously a faith-based podcast. I want to get mm -hmm. into some of the Christian sure. story of this, but, um, what's the reaction generally been of the the Iranian diaspora in America towards your towards your story that part's been great that's awesome <laughs> I those those are the ones I save yeah I um you know that you know you'll get emails and stuff and and the ones that are like from that part of the world I mean it's not that they're you know any more special but they certainly mean a lot more to someone like me because I, I left when I was young yeah and so you know you're you do all this research and you're terrified mm. of um you know, you're, you're terrified of someone else kind of thinking that somehow you had misrepresented the thing that means that much to you, to them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so you go, oh, um, so in that sense, those emails have been really, really heartwarming. A lot of people sort of felt like the that early, the first blush of coming across a new culture, they they felt they sort of 
sympathized with that and felt like it represented them well. And I can't, I mean, I'm sure there was someone out there who threw it across the room. Who knows? It probably <laughs> was. I don't know. But um, thankfully they did not have the the vinegar in them to write me a letter and <laughs> shut me down for a week. Sure. Um, I also try to stay away. I, you know, and I, so, you know, I, I stay, I don't go on, yeah, I don't seek a positive or negative. I don't seek um, uh, that kind, you know, the, too much reaction because it really does shut me down i mean those those will break my bones pretty quick so i i leave that alone but so far yeah the people who've reached out it's been wonderful that's amazing yeah Uh, i'm happy to hear that and i yeah i think it's wise to stay away i i don't think i could take it um nice man (laughs) your uh your sister was the first to become a christian then Mm -hmm. your mom uh, in your family, um, can you talk a little bit about the experience of watching your sister and mom become a Christian, and then the impact it had on you? Um, sure, yeah. So, for, I mean, my dad's—you know—I also watched my dad's response, which yeah, was yes. my my early response was interesting in this to me in, in the sense that it was sort of like really like okay all right so this is deeply inconvenient you know like this is like your child can't say this you know in school ever she we will you will get killed Mm -hmm. and like this and it's not even it's just not a joke it's Mm -hmm. i mean that was an era where everyone was i mean in these places where they have like secret police and they're Mm -hmm. prosecuting across these like you know we all you know in the cold war there were a lot of cultures that we kind of you know were fascinated by that had this it quite literally turns the populace into like the surveillance apparatus Mm -hmm. on itself Mm -hmm. right and so you know i there was this famous story where um you know some uh uh, a teacher would like put up photos of whiskey bottles or alcohol Mm -hmm. bottles and she'd be like does anybody know what this is to kindergarten and if anybody raised their hand they would know that that child at home there was an alcohol bottle and Mm. so they like secret police would literally raid that house like wow how are you going to tell a four-year-old kindergartner like listen don't raise your hand (laughs) like anything you know like that's it's just it's so terrifying so when you when my dad when you see my dad react it's not because he's just like, oh, you know, yeah. uh, 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 shoot, skipping <laughs> <You know what laughs> will be awkward. It's like, that's not how this is. It's, it's, you know, she can really get us, get us killed. Um, and so at first it was that, and then my mom, you know, who had this sort of zeal of the convert immediately mm-hmm. sought out missionaries there, um, you know, and, um, you know, the underground church. And, you know, so very quickly her behavior starts to become fairly risky from the perspective of my dad, Mm -hmm. who's like, lady, you have your own medical practice. We have a lot, and there's a lot to lose. Um, Mm -hmm. She had a lot to lose. And so you start to see his kind of risk analysis and be like, she's, she's, and my, you know, my dad will say like religion made my first wife insane. Mm -hmm. Like he'll, he'll quite literally say like, she, she, because the decisions she was making were starting to look lunatic, right? It's like, mm-hmm. your lady, you're going to lose millions and millions and millions if you decide to go to this, like, church in the basement of a building. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, yeah. can you find a different book club? Like, yeah. <laughs> and, the answer, and the answer is no. And so, for me, I was there was all this quizzical nature around it. I didn't understand. And And then when we have to leave very quickly, it was like, so now we're separated and I, you know, there was clearly, you know, a conflict in their marriage and things like that. But it was like, well, why do we have to leave the country? And then why are there people chasing us? So all these questions always end up mm. at the same root question, which is, so why did you do this? Right. Like, they, there's no part of my story that doesn't 
like funnel back to so hey lady why did you give up everything Mm -hmm. um because she doesn't fit the normal you know like what hollywood would maybe show as like a woman in iran of like oh my goodness it would be so convenient if she could just get to america because her life is so bad right um that the convenient move would be to say and do anything in order to get to America. And that's part of why I wrote the part, first part of the book the way I did was no, the life was really good. Mm-hmm. Like thousands of acres of orchards and the medical practice and the freedom to, you know, be sort of a leader in the community. And then also um, coming here, like being dirt poor and having to work many jobs that, you know, she, that, you know, she was overqualified for yeah. and these sorts of things. Um, so like, there isn't this behind the scenes there isn't that cynical read of boy you know she came to the land of the free it is the land of the free and yes mm-hmm. life you know is is you know free in america and is better but that's not in her case that dynamic doesn't doesn't exist she really gave up just just a ton of money <laughs> so like, i mean let's just put it that way but also like social cachet family everything right and so that that starts to look like an insane decision and i think it everything and there's a there's a you know a big thread in uh, christian apologetics where they call it the mad christ right mm-hmm. like that if you take christ on his terms if you just take the words he says you don't get to be like oh he's a good teacher he right. was a nice guy it's like no he he was either a madman or he was what he claimed to be but you kind of have to choose and there's a there's a polarization around christ that i think that maybe the you know the versions that we imagine of the are not uh, they don't sort of bring up as much and and i think my mother sort of parallels that obviously in a much smaller degree right but um that you have to kind of look at her decision and be like this was either a sincerely better bargain mm-hmm. or she's nuts yeah. <laughs> right yeah. and and what is the bargain it's like we'll give up everything and you get this um Either that's like logical mm-hmm. or it's totally illogical. Yeah. Uh, there's not, there's not another choice. And so um, that's where my, I sort of, my entry into the, the, your question of how did I perceive it? Obviously I was very young. I, I'm older now and I can sure, see it, sure. right? mm-hmm. but from very young, it really was that quizzical, like, what is my mom? Is she nuts? Mm. Like what's going on? Like why mm. are, none of this is better. Like why are you <laughs> making these decisions? You know? Um, and so it started there. Yeah. I'm curious. You've, uh, in many ways, your mom is the hero of the book. Uh, and so what, what does she think about being the hero and the book in, in, in its entirety? Yeah. Well, so in every way, she's the hero of the book because yeah. she's the only one who makes decisions. Yeah. Um, you know, like, um, that's a cha- like, I mean, it's quite, it's a book that breaks like all the rules. Like the whole book is telling, not showing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, there is no showing. It's just him telling you stuff. But so there, and 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 you're you're not watching it from the perspective of the main character, right. the main hero, right? Like the main, you know. And so, um, what does she think? She read it and she, yeah, she enjoyed, she liked it. Uh, she gave it the, the thumbs up, which is great. Um, she was, you know, we made videos, uh, you know, to ex- sort of at the beginning of the book promotion and mm-hmm. to, um, to sort of express that. Uh, I think you know clearly she also had to give up 
the hurt, like it's my, in some ways it does function as my memoir because it's the way I am presenting it. Right. She, of course, I think she's the person who would never speak ill of her own father. Right. Um, and in that sense, like we have to, that's where you have to find that middle ground and say, yeah, well, that's, that's Mm -hmm. my perspective Mm -hmm. on him and I don't have a better one. And so, um, yeah, so I sort of put it in the author's note to be like, yeah, my mom would have preferred this. Yeah. Other than that, and I even I even toned it down. I really just thought he was kind of a monster. Like I didn't like all, the only stories I had ever heard. I didn't. My you know her father to sort of clarify for listeners is like, you know, he was a really stern dude. He's he's kind of the only, and in some ways he was subject to like the stereotypes we have of Middle Eastern men, right? Mm. Like just like they're, like why are they scowling all the time? <laughs> like what's up with that beard? Like why is it so? <laughs> in this case, like he had a bushy, he had this mustache that was like. Golly, he just looked like he was from the 1970s and he was going to take you hostage. And so uh, um, I, you know, in that sense, like I, I had only seen that picture. I'd never seen him smiling at me and holding me or anything. Like that, right. So like, whereas for her, it's like, no, he's a human. He's not a photograph. And so um, I fully admit that she has the more three dimensional view of this person. But if that's, you know. I, I'm still not allowed to, I still don't have that view. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you can sort of say, you know, this, whatever, uh, you know, this person is actually really sweet. And you're like, okay, yeah, but he only ever played uh, villains in movies. I don't know what to tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm still kind of scared of him. <laughs> There's probably a sense in which, like, the Christian community, this book is, it's, tells a Christian story in so many ways. And yet, you you wrote the book for a popular audience. You're not writing like a you know C.S. Lewis novel or something like that. Um, but it, do you um, is there a part of you that wants to distance yourself from the the probably I don't know the the agenda of maybe a Christian audience wanting to make you into some sort of Christian hero or your mom a Christian hero or to turn this book into something that maybe you're not. Have you felt that? Have you felt a pull from that audience at all or not really? Uh, not, I mean, I mean, it's kind of weird. I would never, you know, the, the, it's an interesting problem to have. I call that a success problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sure, <laughs> it's sure. like, I mean, that'd be cool. Let's have it. Uh, <laughs> We'll, we'll deal with it later. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't necessarily think along those lines. I mean, I know who I am. Right. I know who, and I know that I want to speak to everyone. They're right. as welcome. Everybody is as welcome. I think that as everybody else, I don't. I don't sit there and. I think when you say the word agenda, it's a fascinating one because it immediately harkens to a marketing issue, sure, not sure. an art as an artistic issue, right? everybody's welcome. There's literally no one I wouldn't tell this story to, and there's no one I would change the story for. Yeah. Um, so, and so in that sense, like I, I think once as a young, as a, as a younger artist, I think I would have had this issue. I think there's a lot of younger artists who are like, how do I grapple with, you know, uh, art and faith. And also yeah. how do I grapple with like the fact that there's a parallel economy of like Christian publishing and regular publishing. Right, right, and right. publishing. And, like I came up to 20 years through reg- straight up New York publishing. Right. Um, and but I, you know, I was always, always myself. Um, and so in that sense, I don't um, I don't I, I, I do remember in my 20s, I would have been like, so are you a I don't know, are you a Christian artist or an artist who's Christian or right, an artist right, who's right, spiritual? Right, right. And then like there's like furtherance and furtherance of the signaling. 
And fundamentally, like everybody's welcome in my house, but my house is not going to redecorate itself for whoever's coming over. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that's that's where it is in terms of marketing. Then you start to get into like sure. questions, right? In terms of, and and good marketing is the kind of you know it's almost like it's almost you know you it's the same as like Persians have a very strong aversion to talking about. To, to money money mm. is like it's not it's it's the lowest form of poetry mm. um and so you know in that sense you know mar- that's what marketing is it's sort of saying like what is your political agenda i fun- functionally i have managed i think to avoid um avoid that in the same way that i avoid a lot of conversations around you know the politics of iran and america right, right? like i, I in, not because i don't want to tick anyone off but because i functionally do not believe that the channel of marketing or the channel of the internet or the channel of twitter is at all a high enough fidelity channel to have that kind of conversation i think it's deeply inappropriate for me to speak on a podcast or on any form of internet where I've not been welcomed into your house and immediately start saying any of these things or for them to say them about me. Right. If you want to come to my house, dude, we will sit down. We'll talk about religion. We'll talk about what I think of the government. We'll talk about everything. Sure. And it'll be great. And you'll look in my face and you'll, and I'll feed you and you'll, you know, we'll sit. And that's where you can have those conversations and they can be deep and we can be flawed. And you yeah. can think like, boy, that dude is wrong or, <laughs> or like, he's got it right. Like, yeah, and yeah. it can be, but the idea of that as a channel on the internet, or even as a channel aspect of book, you know, of, of, of my art of like something that I really do love. I try yeah. not to hold on to, I try not to be like self-important. Sure. Or, sure. You know, try not to take yourself too seriously. But like, look, when I sit down and write, it's the only, it's, it makes me so happy. Mm. I really think I'm coming, you know, there's a moment in the chariots of fire where he says, you know, when I run, I, you know, I look up, I feel like the joy of God on my face. Yeah. And I think people, you know, they have, this is what we sometimes call our calling. Like for, look, when I write, I am truly happy. I don't, I don't feel um, as broken as I usually feel. And so I take it very seriously. And mm. I would I think the channel of the marketing team around it having to talk about elements of politics and religion, things like that, is just it's just not a high enough fidelity. Like there's yeah. no one's gonna give you enough attention on Twitter to have that conversation. I think it's mm-hmm. a broken idea to even have it. I think the idea of trying to ask me not that you guys did, but sure, like the sure. of like of like having like a whatever whatever that sure. you could do and we've all seen it like we all know there's like oh there's a good christian cd company or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it just it's just it's just a broken notion and i but as at the same time like i you know when we were in new york and even now like i have a open standing offer like literally anyone can tweet me my phone number is on my website like you can call straight to my cell phone <laughs> like um or and you know come over for a Saturday. If you want to actually have that question with me, you can come to my literally come to my house. I will literally feed you three courses and we can have that conversation. <laughs> but that not ever, that many people do. I was gonna <laughs> ask, has anybody taken you up on those kind of offers? It's really funny. When I first started, people were like, you know, you should change your <laughs> I had my face. Yeah. I had my face on Twitter and they were like, people are scared of your face. So like, you're like, I mean, no one said this, but like she, she did nicely. My friend was like, your face is really severe. Cause I, I, I was like, well, it's not my fault. I was like, 
but uh but so i changed it to like a smiling illustrated image of me and way more people like signed up but yeah we used to it's called welcome everybody dinner Mm. and i i used to post it on uh monday morning i would post and then whoever the first i mean my house is not very big but in you know in new york in jersey so the first six people were the only people who could fit so Mm. yeah we had random people show up and and to this day like yo look if you hear it and come sure why not are you really that interested Functionally, if they're actually that interested, sure. th- then buy-in is for them to reach out to a very severe-looking uh, Middle Eastern <laughs> and, and to come to his house uh, and eat. And if they do that, yeah, then we can talk about <laughs> my personal life. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, buy it. I hope you like it. Tell your Christian mom. Tell your minister. Tell everybody. <laughs> and then tell tell your you know uh, atheist dad and, and who can. <laughs> When you come to Texas, we'll have a we'll have a plate for you. So yeah, come absolutely. on to our house. Awesome. Yeah. And you That'd be great. Well, you may have to cook something because you mentioned you were a pastry chef. And so maybe last <laughs> question that is personal. Uh, what's your best pastry dish? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and from Jersey City, oh. that's like cake boss right area so yeah 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 don't make me come after kids cupcake okay, boss. Okay. <laughs> i already answered i already answered uh you know faith and art now i gotta answer cupcake boss <laughs> yeah this is where i get controversial no uh i i the best i mean i'll tell you the thing that i adore the most because it was the dish that i credit for having um won me uh the heart of my lady was uh um, our first date, I really wanted to impress. And so I made millefeuille. You know, millefeuille is what some people call the Na- Napoleon is a, the other name for the pastry chef. It's like layers of puff pastry with like a really nice cream. Some people do Chantilly cream. Some people even, I've even seen like Boston cream, but it's a nice creme anglaise is really mm. what it is. And so it's just like puff pastry, cream, puff pastry, cream. And then, and it, you know, and so you can top it like, you know, some people top it with really like icing, which I hate. And some, but I top it with whipped cream and strawberries. Mm. So it's almost like a French countryside, uh, strawberries and cream kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I, so I made that we're, you know, in the dorm of my university. Uh, and you know, it was, it was very homespun, but it kind of conveyed that I had really tried. Um, so I still think of like most fondly about that dessert. But uh, but yeah, I, I I like anything that's custardy. I like a good you know like panna cotta. I like I kind of I'm a sugar fiend. I mean, I eat, look, I'll eat like Nutty Buddies, like <laughs> little Debbie, for all all day. So don't don't make you know I don't I don't want to sound too snobby. But yeah, I'll go I'll go as far down that road as the people will let me. So you know, yeah, mostly chocolates and panna cotta custards. Well, it's lunchtime here Lunch, and yeah. you're making my mouth water. Um, for those who have not read the book yet, it's called Everything Sad is Untrue. Please pick it up. Um, maybe the most maybe the most poignant thing I can say is it is just filled with all these beautiful things we've been talking about. And to go back to something you said earlier, Daniel, it's there's a moment in the book where you describe what your mom had to get up give up in order to believe what she believes. And you you do this thing where you say Christianity wasn't safe for her. It wasn't a safe thing. Uh, And you start to say this thing, it's like, well, if all these things are true, if you get Jesus at the end, then then it's worth being spit on. It's worth being, and you kind of do this list of all the things it was worth doing for your mom. And in a day and age in which uh, faith is not that costly to see your mom's faith 
and to see that it what it didn't produce in you was a um, resentment. You know, I'm sure there was conflict, but you you haven't talked about it with any sort of resentment. Um, to see your sister with her resolve, um, it just man, it t- it touched me deeply. Uh, and the, to surround it with the magic and the tale of family and everything else, it was just incredible, man. So thank you for writing it. I think it's again my favorite book of the past year for sure. And um, and to our listeners, really, I commend it highly to you. So thanks again, Daniel. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode was produced by Chris Starrett, Chelsea Conway, and Mandy Page. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can message us on social. Check out the show notes for more information, and we'll see you next time. Oh,